Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. I took your line. You took my job. Yeah. Well, <laughs> How whatever. How does it feel? It feels amazing. It's correct. I pressed the big red button that said record, and therefore I get to say, and we're live. Mm-hmm. And you understand. So anyway, how are you? I'm good. We are live from San Francisco. We it's are. It's a cool city. We are in San Francisco. It's a really cool city. I had never been, um, and the architecture is just so like distinct and beautiful, and I think it's really cool. I mean, it's it's definitely different than LA. It's much more urban, which I honestly feel silly even saying cuz like I just I knew nothing about San Francisco before we came. But here we are. Yeah, it feels like a legit city to yeah, me because there's high rises everywhere. And they yeah, you're talking about the architecture. It's like got character. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not really just, pretty. Yeah, a lot of the buildings in LA are like modern. Yeah. And there's just really not much going on except for a block, right. you know. Although it doesn't make any sense that they built this city on this gigantic hilly area like it's just the hills are insane but um that's ideal that's another point for another day but because we're in san francisco i thought it would be fun to talk about something having to do with san francisco and you clicked on this episode so you know what it's about i don't know why i'm being coy we're talking about alcatraz (laughs) (laughs) we're talking about the escape from alcatraz we just name it something really ambiguous yeah (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, but I knew very little about Alcatraz. I knew that it was, you know, a a very famous prison, but I didn't really know all that much else. So I had a lot of fun researching this story, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it as well. So why don't we jump in? Yeah. Okay. Alcatraz Island is a small island in San Francisco Bay, 1.25 miles or 2.01 kilometers offshore from San Francisco, California. The island was developed in the mid-19th century with facilities for a lighthouse, a military fortification, and a military prison, and in 1934, the island was converted into a federal prison, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. Also known as The Rock, Alcatraz was designed to house the prisoners that other prisons couldn't control and was supposedly escape-proof. That's like its main thing. They were like, this shit you cannot get out of. Just like the Titanic. (laughs) That's, someone made that comparison. They're like, just like people were saying the Titanic couldn't sink, people were also saying you couldn't escape from Alcatraz, and look what happened. So the bare rock rising out of San Francisco Bay has little vegetation, it is surrounded by the cold San Francisco Bay, and is subject to fog and damp winds. Former inmate Brian Conway said, quote, I served 10 years in Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which was bad enough, and two months in Alcatraz Prison, which was worse. Wow. Yeah. So what made Alcatraz so bad? It's always the people. The people? You know. Well, sure. I mean, it's... I feel like, especially in this city, it's all the tech people. They're all just like... It's just really the culture. It's the people that make it. Well, I don't it's the think... the same thing with Alcatraz. I don't think Alcatraz the was filled with, with techies. If I had to take a guess, I would say that the tech bros were probably not in Alcatraz. But they should be. Oh, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, so 
What made Alcatraz so bad was the discipline. It was as severe as it possibly could be. There was one rule that was actually considered so harsh that it only lasted a very short amount of time, like only a few years that it was implemented. There were strict limits on when prisoners could talk, which meant that nearly complete silence was mandated at all times. The convicts couldn't speak to each other or the guards when standing in line, when being moved around the prison, or even when eating, except to order their food. The only times they could converse freely were in the exercise yard, on the weekends, or at work in the factory. Many inmates drained the water from their toilets and found a way to communicate through the sewage pipes. That's how desperate they were to talk to each other, which I understand. I mean, it must have been so eerie to be in that prison and have it just be dead silent. Yeah, I feel like you need at least one conversation a day. I mean, these people are just walking around silent like monks. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's not like they've really mastered their inner demons if they found themselves at Alcatraz. No, I'm sure not. You know? Yeah, actually, they said even the most introverted inmate was going crazy under those conditions. You know, can't blame them. Yeah. Also, you said that there was a rule that only lasted a couple weeks. Do you remember what the rule was? Not weeks. Um, It's that rule, the, the silence rule, only lasted five years because it truly was that bad to the point where people were going crazy. Oh, they were like, this is uh, creating more problems than it's solving. Yes, correct. Prisoners on Alcatraz were expected to follow the strict rules, and when they didn't, there was punishment. This might involve being locked in their cells, losing privileges, or even being force-fed. They force-fed them? Yes, but the worst offenders were sent to D-Block, which was where the really bad stuff happened. For a time, there was what was known as the dungeon, which was below the prison, and, you know, kind of like a dungeon. Uh, and there, <laughs> and the prisoners would be chained up, standing in total darkness, often with no food and regular beatings. These punishments often lasted for as long as 14 days, and by 1942, the dungeon was found to be unnecessarily cruel and closed. During World War II, they were like, oh yeah, this is too cruel. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what they insane. also did with the quiet rule as well. They're like, these are too harsh. So they stopped, which wow. I guess is good. They well, were like you aware. You beat somebody for 14 days. For punishment, prisoners would also be sent to D-block, like I mentioned, which was dubbed the hole, since the cells were composed of only a hole used as a toilet. Inmates were poorly fed while in the hole, beaten often, and experienced sensory deprivation for days on end. There were 42 cells in D-Block with varying levels of punishment. However, one of the worst was known as the strip cell, and it was a small steel-encased room with no light and no toilet, except for the small hole in the floor, and inmates were put in there naked and given very limited meals. At night, they were given a thin mattress, but it was removed during the day, and it was so bad that most inmates were only put in there for one to two days, and legally, they couldn't be held there for more than 19. On the flip side, when prisoners would go on hunger strikes, they would be force-fed, like I mentioned, and this involved forcing a rubber tube down the throat of a convict on a hunger fast and forcing them to ingest a mixture of milk, sugar, and eggs. To do this, 
the staff would have to strap the inmate down very securely, open the mouth with a lever, and put the tube in, which was a very painful process, as I'm sure you can imagine. The most notable instance of this happened in 1936 after several prisoners went on a hunger fast and 10 prisoners were all made to take the tube on this occasion. Also, the cells, like their regular cells, were only 5 feet by 9 feet, which is about the distance of two arms outstretched. Their routine each day was also extremely rigid, and that included a count of the prisoners every 15 to 30 minutes. Men would go slowly insane under the exquisite torture and restricted and undeviating routine. They would literally go insane and become violent. On one instance, a convict that was working on the dock suddenly picked up an axe, laid his left hand on the block, and chopped off every single one of his fingers and then laid his right hand on the block and begged the guard to cut it off, laughing like a demon, quote-unquote. So that was one instance of the craziness that happened. Um, Almost every night after the men were locked in their cells, the guards would do target practice and shoot at dummies that would be left sprawled along the walkways with bullet holes, and they would be left sprawled along the walkways for the inmates to see what might happen to them if they tried to escape. So it was kind of like a warning. I think they get the idea. Well, You're like force feeding them. Well, Who yeah. takes a job as a guard at Alcatraz? Yeah, so it what was... What type of person is doing this shit? I don't know. It was incredibly harsh and also very difficult for the men to sleep because of the constant sounds of, you know, gunfire outside of the prison. Although, surprisingly, Alcatraz had a few nicer features than even some other prisons had. Some of the quote-unquote luxuries of Alcatraz were put into place as a disguise for better security. Alcatraz's first warden knew that prisoners were more likely to riot if their meals were terrible, so he served decent food, and inmates were also allowed to have as many helpings as they wanted. Unlike other prisons, Alcatraz allowed its inmates access to quote-unquote moderately hot water, so they didn't have to take cold showers every single day. I mean, they were still communal showers that were unpleasant, but they were at least lukewarm showers. Um, And each cell was smaller than other prisons, but every inmate had their own cell, which lessened violence because nobody would get attacked in their cell at night. Yeah, I mean, if you put two insane people with each other, the outcome's not going to be good. Right, so these luxuries that some other prisons didn't have, like decent food, hot water, like single cells they were all for security purposes so i get why prisons make bunk beds but it seems kind of dumb because you're just putting criminals together in close proximity especially if they're violent it's like what are we doing here they're one bad snore away from snapping like (laughs) seriously i mean think about it like if someone's Already, they're kind of going insane with the conditions that are at Alcatraz. So imagine if you're if you hated your cellmate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, well, I mean, terrible. even if you don't, if you are pissed off enough, the energy yeah. has to go somewhere. Definitely. Yeah. No. I mean, it was it was kind of essential for them to give them each their own cell because there were only so many guards. I mean, actually, there were enough guards per per prisoner, but I mean, at night you can't really regulate everyone. But anyway. I just wanted to give us a little bit of background on Alcatraz, you know, as it was and the what happened there before I got into the story. So 
Our actual story begins on August 11th, 1934, when Alcatraz was reopened as a federal penitentiary. It was 12 acres of land in the middle of San Francisco Bay and was America's most notorious escape-proof prison or at least they thought. It was the state-of-the-art institution at the time. And before long, it was filled with some of America's most notorious criminals, including Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, Nicky Cohen, and Robert Stroud, or the Birdman of Alcatraz. The inmates sent to Alcatraz were known to be the worst of the worst. The most dangerous inmates were sent there, many of which had a history of escape attempts. The maximum capacity of the prison was 600, but it rarely exceeded 250 prisoners, which meant that it had the highest ratio of guards to prisoners. There was one guard per every three prisoners, and there was an official count of the prisoners done every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. Wow. <laughs> They're literally every 15 minutes? Yes. I saw reports of every 15 minutes, and then I also saw every 30 minutes, but somewhere in between every 15 to every 30 minutes, they were they had an official count. That's insane. Yeah. Well, I mean, try and escape in 15 minutes. Exactly. This state-of-the-art facility had steel bars, thick concrete walls, and guards stood at watch posts with the order of shoot to kill. The island was covered with fences topped with barbed wire, and each day there were many scheduled and unscheduled body counts and cell inspections. And on top of that, there was the bay itself. Alcatraz was its own island, like I said, and it was located more than a mile out from San Francisco, and the tides and currents were treacherous, and the water was supposedly unbearably cold. There were also reports of great white sharks in the water, that were referred to as quote-unquote man-eating sharks. And some of those things were true, but others were designed to just scare the prisoners from attempting escape. Like, the water was cold, but it wouldn't actually kill you, and was actually swam regularly since 1900 with no problem. And there were also no great white sharks in San Francisco Bay, and there never has been, so that was just a straight-up lie. But despite that propaganda, escape attempts were made. 1,576 prisoners went through Alcatraz during its time as a federal prison, and of that, only 14 escape attempts were made by 36 men. All of those attempts failed. Some of the men died violently or drowned, or they were shot during the escape, but most of them were recaptured. That was until... Frank Morris and the brothers John and Clarence Anglin came along. All three of them had been in and out of jail since they were teenagers. Frank Lee Morris was born in Washington, D.C. on September 1st, 1926. His parents abandoned him when he was 11, so he spent the rest of his childhood in foster homes as an orphan, which is incredibly sad. He was convicted of his first criminal offense at 13, and by his late teens, he had been arrested for crimes ranging from narcotic possession to armed robbery. Later, he was arrested for grand larceny in Miami Beach, car theft, and armed robbery. He served time in Florida and Georgia and then escaped from Louisiana State Penitentiary while serving 10 years for bank robbery. He was recaptured a year later while committing a burglary and sent to Alcatraz on January 20th, 1960 as inmate number AZ1441. 
Morris reportedly ranked in the top 2% of the general population in intelligence as measured by IQ testing, and he got a 133. So he was quite smart. Near genius level, right? I think. I mean, I don't know. Top actually. 2% of general population. That ain't bad. Right. John Anglin was born on May 2nd, 1930, and Clarence was born on May 11th, 1931, so almost exactly a year apart. They were born into a farming family of 13 children in Donaldsonville, Georgia. However, they moved around a bit until they ended up in Michigan to pick cherries. Fuck yeah. Clarence and John were reportedly inseparable as youngsters. They became skilled swimmers and amazed their siblings by swimming in the frigid waters of Lake Michigan as ice still floated on its surface. It's kind of badass. It is. And also, it may be unintentional preparation for the escape from Alcatraz. It was a good skill to have. Yeah. The brothers began robbing banks and other establishments as teens in the early 1950s, usually targeting businesses that were closed to ensure no one got injured. They claimed that they only used a weapon once during a bank heist, which was actually just a toy gun. So they never actually used any weapons. And after robbing Columbia Savings Bank in Columbia, Alabama, they received 35-year sentences, which they served at Florida State Prison and then Atlanta Penitentiary. However, after repeated attempts of escape from the Atlanta facility, John and Clarence were transferred to Alcatraz. John arrived on October 24, 1960, and Clarence on January 10, 1961. So again, a year later. Also involved with this plan was inmate Alan Clayton West, who had been in Alcatraz since June of 1958 and had spent a lot of his time in solitary confinement. Obviously, Clarence and John were brothers, but they knew Frank and Alan from other previous incarcerations in Florida and Georgia. So these guys were already friends. They're just buds. Yeah. After they were all assigned adjacent cells in, de in December of 1961, they began formulating an escape plan under the leadership of Frank Morris. So Alan West was kind of the brains behind this whole event, but he never actually made it out himself. But he was kind of the key to their escape because the inmates at Alcatraz were entitled to food, clothing, shelter, and medical attention. However, jobs in the prison were a privilege to be earned because it gave the inmates, you know, something to do. So they were kind of like, okay, you get a job if you're good. And West had a job. He worked as a maintenance orderly, which was a perfect position because he started out by painting the cell house, and that put him on scaffolding or in different cells all over different places around the cell block, which is when he saw that there was a vent that seemed like it might be vulnerable. While cleaning the top of the cell block in the spring of 1961, West discovered a narrow ventilation shaft on the roof, and he saw that it was covered with bars, but finding that shaft was the beginning of this plan. Frank and Alan had cells right next to each other, and the Anglin brothers were next to each other only a few cells away from the other two. And this was important because the location of their cells in B block was critical to the way their escape plan would go down. The proximity of the cells made it possible for the men to communicate between themselves at pretty much any time, whether it was day or night. 
It all began in the spring of 1961 when Alan told Frank about the shaft, which is when he invited the Anglin brothers in on this plan. And from that point, it would be more than a year before they actually made their escape. So this required a lot of meticulous planning, patience, and a lot of luck. Behind their cells, there was a rarely used utility corridor filled with a maze of pipes. And once they were in that narrow passageway, it would be easy for them to climb three stories to the top of the cell block by using these pipes that were protruding from the walls. From there, they hoped to escape up the narrow ventilation shaft onto the roof, and then from the roof, they would go off the cell house down to the water where they hoped to make some kind of raft that they could use as a flotation device. The first step was to find a way out of their cells. And the only way into the utility corridor behind their cells was to excavate or make bigger the vents that already existed in the back of each of their cells. So there was like a, a vent that they could basically like continue to carve out with whatever they could, like spoons or pieces of metal, just anything they could find. Like a air vent? Yeah. Okay. The vents were only a few inches high and wide, and the grills were buried in eight-inch thick concrete. To break through that, they used whatever they could get their hands on, like spoons from the dining hall, and at one point they even managed to make crude power tools. They also had to conceal the noise from them chipping away at the walls in their cells, and they did that by waiting until other inmates were practicing musical instruments in their cells which was every night after dinner. So for approximately an hour, or an hour and 15 minutes, the musicians were allowed to play, and they had accordions, saxophones, trumpets, guitars, which, as you could imagine, made a lot of noise. Actually, Al Capone started a small band called the Rock Islanders, which then became a hit because after that, the Chaplin formed a string orchestra with 30 men, and they gave monthly concerts. Really? Yes. Isn't that insane? <laughs> That's insane. So he goes from gangster to hit orchestra. Yeah. Well, Al Capone is like a whole other story that we're not really getting into, but he basically was able to like buy his way out of anything in the other prisons that he was in. He, he pretty much ran the place, but then when he was in Alcatraz they weren't having that. So he had to kind of readjust the way he did shit. And he was like, okay, I'm going to go crazy if I don't have a band. So it was like his only way of having a, a decent time, I suppose. Keeping sane. Yeah. But I just thought that was really interesting that they were like actually allowed to practice instruments and like have a band. Yeah. But it, I mean, it was perfect for the guys who were chipping away at the walls of their cells. Yeah. It worked out for them. Yeah. There had also been ongoing construction in the cell house, which they took full advantage of to cover the noise that they were making. And finally, after several months of chipping away bit by bit, they were able to squeeze their bodies through the hole. They were also able to conceal the hole by making fake vents out of a piece of cardboard that they painted with the colors of the cell. So once the men exited their cells, they could basically just like put a piece of cardboard in front of it and make it look like nothing had happened. How'd they get paint? I mean, there was, I don't know, construction. So they were able to, they were very crafty. They were very thrifty. No shit. There's a lot of planning and th crazy shit that goes into this. Wait, so they literally covered a human-sized hole with cardboard? 
Yeah, I mean, it was still a small hole that they had to, like, squeeze through, but they were able to conceal it by putting a piece of cardboard that looked like the vent. I mean, you needed it to be at least, what, a foot and a half? Yeah. For, like, a grown person? Yeah, grown men. Um, <laughs> that's just insane to me. I know. They always had to be very careful about leaving their cells. They needed to have one man watch while the other, like, left. So Alan and Frank were next to each other, and then the Anglin brothers were a little a little ways away next to each other as well. So while one of them went into the wall, the other would, like, watch for the guards and signal to the other one if anyone was coming. And this escape plan was widely known amongst the other prisoners, and dozens of them, if not more than that, actually helped. Possibly as many as 80 inmates out of the 160 to 180 who were incarcerated at the time were in on the escape. Whoa. Yeah. And nobody ratted. No. There was this code amongst the inmates that even if they themselves weren't trying to escape, they would help whoever was. But even if the men managed to break out of the cell house, they had a much bigger problem how to get off the island. So they knew they couldn't just swim across because that's what had gotten other inmates who attempted escape to be caught or killed. So they knew they needed some kind of a boat. And they found their solution for this in the prison library. They found a mechanic magazine and there was an article that explained how to construct life jackets and also how to make an inflatable raft. Whoa. Isn't that insane? This is so crafty. This is insane. I know. They managed to do that by sneaking a bunch of raincoats into the cell house and sewing them together to make life jackets and a raft with these raincoats. Oh, and then you just blow them up. Pretty much. Or they like stuffed them with with something. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is where a lot of help from the other inmates came in because the way they would help was people would carry items back and forth from work or from the dock. They would hide things. They would pass things to the next person or whatever else they could do. They knew they needed a place to hide their tools and to build a raft. I mean, this raft was big, so they needed a place to build it. And the only place to do that was on the top of the cell block, which was actually in plain sight of one of the guard stations which led to one of the most incredible deceptions of the entire plot. They managed to block off that part of the cell house by putting up anywhere from 40 to 80 blankets. What? They put up, they hung blankets to completely conceal this section of the cell house. And so they managed to block off that part of the cell house because Alan West had convinced the guards that to prevent dust and paint from splattering on the floors below while he cleaned and painted the top of the cell blocks, he had to hang blankets. But of course, they used that to just conceal their work for the escape. Oh my god. I can't believe he convinced them, oh, I just need to hang these up for Dustin. But, like, it makes enough sense. It makes enough sense, and these guards were very clearly incompetent. Like, he just completely took advantage of their incompetence. Well, I mean, why wouldn't he? Well, right. Yeah, (laughs) that's just crazy to me. I know. They hid a boat. Yes. (laughs) Or a raft. And life jackets. (laughs) 80 blankets? 80. 80 blankets. And the blankets stayed up a really long time. It wasn't just, like, a week or two. Like, the blankets were up. I mean... How many people are at Alcatraz at one time? 200? 
At that time, it was about 160 to 180 prisoners plus the guards. That's half the prisoners' blankets. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I don't How know do if they were. That? I don't know if they were using the actual prisoners' blankets because the the well, prison I'm... was made for 600 inmates, so they probably were using like extra blankets. Oh yeah. Okay. That that makes more sense. I'm just like calling out the number. Like, no, the... for sure. It's ridiculous. Not only do they manage to put up these 80-some blankets, but they were also allowed to stay up for more than two whole months. And they would do the work on their escape plan at night up behind these blankets. They managed to fool the guards who were doing headcount during the night when they were supposed to be asleep in their cells by constructing paper mache dummy heads. <laughs> So they were able to make these heads with the stuff that they actually already had in their cells. They used soap and mixed it into a paste and then took toilet paper and added that to the paste. Then they mixed concrete dust from the concrete that they had chipped away from the wall or from, you know, dust from under their bed. And they combined that all together and they were able to make like paper mache masks. Wow. I mean, the resourcefulness is so high. I don't know. Jarring? Shocking? They're quite resourceful. Yeah. Inmate Leon Whitey Thompson was the the one who showed Frank Morris how to mix a flesh tone color for the mask. So they had like, you know, skin tone paint. And they also used human hair as well to like make a head of hair and eyelashes and eyebrows for these masks because Clarence Anglin was working in the barber shop at the time and it was very easy for him to leave each day with pockets full of real human hair so they got detailed oh yeah these they, masks are cool looking i can po- oh, i'll post pictures of them on the instagram but they like are pretty good for just you know three inmates to just make happen i mean of all the things they're trying yeah. to figure out they also like made these paper mache heads they're like artists <laughs> yeah i know of, I was it's kind say, of funny it's like a little craft no project. i know they're like they're kind of artists so it's almost like they went to joanne's <laughs> sure <laughs> really terrible joanne's <laughs> the final part of their plan was constructing the raft and gradually by early june of 1962 the last tools and parts of the raft were smuggled into the cell block and they were getting really close to when they'd actually escape. The raft was 14 feet by six feet. Seriously? Huge. <laughs> yes, that it's that big. Like think about trying to conceal a 14 by six foot raft. And they did. <laughs> I just, how? It was made out of 40 to 80 waterproof raincoats, and it was successfully sewn down in the shops where it was then transferred very carefully up to the cell blocks over the course of weeks and was painstakingly assembled. Luckily for the men, the prison didn't keep inventory of their raincoats, so the 80 missing raincoats were never noticed. 80 missing raincoats. 80 waterproof raincoats, yes. June 11th, 1962, Arthur Dolson was the associate warden who was on duty as acting warden since the main guy was away. Very unlucky for him. He was in charge when all this went down. So he lived on the island with his family, and that night he was down in his apartment watching television. Meanwhile, after lights out, at 9.30 p.m., the four men began their escape. They had a lot ahead of them, but that started by each of them propping up their dummy head on the pillow and tucking it in to resemble a sleeping body. And one last time, they squeezed out of the back of their cells 
and set the fake grills up behind them. The other inmates knew that they were going that night and they were all listening to the sounds of them shimmying through their holes and going into the utility corridor where they met up. And once they met up, they realized that Alan West was not with them. But the show had to go on, so they began their climb to the top of the cell block. Alan West was actually back in his cell and was struggling to break out of it. He had never fully excavated his vent and had never actually gone through his hole. And there was a big metal pole in the way that he wasn't anticipating, so he missed his opportunity. Oh, no. And he was the brains. Yes. Yeah. Not enough, man. Right, exactly. He never went through the hole? He Apparently not. He never went through. Why wouldn't you? I don't know. I guess he just, like, was doing other stuff. Like, he was kind of orchestrating all the other parts of the escape plan that maybe he just never wow. never did that. Too smart. The thing right under his nose is yeah, what did it. Yeah, exactly. So as the men climbed at the bars of the utility shaft, the inmates could hear them going up and up and up to the ceiling. But on their way up, one of them must have dropped a bar because everyone heard the loud clinks as the bar hit all the other pipes on the way down and then hit the floor very loud. And the moment it fell, inmate Whitey Thompson had looked over at the guardrail and saw that there was a guard standing there who he knew for a fact that the guard had heard the sound as well, but he didn't even bat an eye. Which is what? which is very weird. And some people believed that some of the guards may have even been in on it with them and did nothing to stop them. But I don't know. I find that kind of hard to believe. How do you not hear that? Like, clink, 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 clink. Bing! Yeah, like when no. a pipe drops it's and loud. it's quiet, it's fucking loud, yeah. especially from high up. Yeah, and Whitey Thompson was saying that, like, when you spend that much time in the prison and you you know sleep there every single night you know every sound that the, the prison is making you you can identify every single sound and he said that night there was a bunch of new sounds and the guards could definitely hear at least some of them i mean that being said the inmates did know that this was happening so even if they heard some like weird stuff they can identify that it's the escape plan but maybe the guards didn't care or they didn't know or you know they, they weren't listening for it you know what i mean yeah, I mean, I don't you know. never think somebody's escaping with a 14-foot raft. Right, exactly. So finally, the men made it to the top of the cell block where the hanging blankets were still standing and hid them as they completed the raft because they had to finish it the night of the escape. The men didn't want to leave Alan West behind, but he still hadn't made it out of his cell and they were running out of time. But it was understood between the men that if someone had to be left behind, then they were being left behind. So once the raft was completed, they very slowly and as quietly as possible worked on the old rusted bars that covered the ventilation shaft to the roof until they freed them from the vent and squeezed through the hole. When they made it up to the roof, they ran across the top and Whitey again said he could feel the vibrations and hear the light footsteps as the men had crossed the roof above them. Also, every night, hundreds of seagulls settled down on the roof so when the men ran across the seagulls took off and they were all squawking and like making a ruckus so that was another big noise that the guards just ignored well i mean i, I guess mean it's seagulls would, yeah. so you know they do that right but isn't that crazy there was just hundreds of seagulls yeah 
The three men sprinted across the 300-foot roof and climbed down the five-story building and then cut their way through two eight-foot fences that had barbed wire on the top. They made their way past the water tower and down a grassy hill. Dude, S- stay how- with me. There's a okay. lot of stuff. <laughs> how did they get down? Down what? A five-story building? I guess there was something for them to climb down. Like pipes or something? Yeah. And then what did they use to cut the fence? Wire cutters. They had like... Oh, they had wire cutters? They had they had all the tools they needed. Wow. I mean, I shouldn't be shocked at this point. No. Yeah. I so, still can't get over the raft. <laughs> I know. No, seriously. I mean, they cut the fence. They ran past the water tower down a hill, all while being completely undetected by the guards who were in these towers, supposedly keeping watch. I mean, they probably, this is the inescapable island, and right. you do it all day, every day. I guess. And, I wouldn't be watching all the time after right. that. But the men then made it to the water, got into their raft, and made it off the island. By that time, Alan West had actually made it out of his cell, and had scrambled through the ventilation shaft across the roof until he saw that the other men had already gone without him, which must have felt really bad, because he was the man with the original plan. But there was nothing he could do. He just waited there on the roof until dawn and then went back to his cell. At around seven the next morning, the wake-up bell rang and all the inmates got out of their bed where they had 10 minutes to wash up, use the bathroom, do whatever they needed to do before the lieutenant blew the whistle indicating that it was time for count. All the inmates stood at the bars of their cells to be counted, all except Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. How the cell was laid out was if you were looking in from the bars outside of the cell, the bed was on the right wall and the prisoner's head was on the pillow, which was right behind the bars of the cell. So Alcatraz guard Bill Long saw that Frank Morris was still asleep in his bed and as he was walking by, hit the pillow from outside of the bars, which is when what looked like Frank Morris's head rolled off the pillow and hit the floor. (laughs) After the initial shock of seeing what he thought was a prisoner's head detach from their body and hit the floor, he realized that this was a fake head and the prisoner was very much not asleep in his bed and not in his cell at all. Sirens immediately went off all over the island and once the acting warden arrived, the investigation began immediately. And because of the hole in the back of Alan West's cell, the questioning began with him because Alan West was still in his cell, but he also had a hole in the back of his cell. So they're like, hey, bud, what's up here? What's going on? Tell me about it. Tell us about the hole. Right. So (laughs) he admitted to being a part of it because he had a giant hole. There wasn't much he could do. Yeah. You know? But, so he did cooperate, and he gave them some details, but he left out as many as he could. That way, there was still wiggle room for anyone else who wanted to try and attempt to escape. And all the other inmates said absolutely nothing. The guards knew that the prisoners knew something, but they couldn't get a single one of them to talk except Alan West. Yeah, I mean, Alan's got to give him something. Yeah, he kind of had to. But isn't it crazy? All of the other prisoners were, like, zipped shut. Yeah, it's insane when you give them all kind of something to... Unite. Unite around. Yeah. It's, uh... They don't have much else. Right. I mean, they're... Why would they rat on the people who escaped? They're like... 
don't rat. We don't like these. Well, first of all, don't rat. Snitches get stitches. But also, we don't <laughs> like these guards or the prison system. So, you know, they can kind of get fucked. You know what I mean? We don't like these guards or the prison system. Exactly. Get fucked. <laughs> get fucked. Right. So the Alcatraz guards and the FBI searched the island from top to bottom in the caves and the little hideaways on the island that the men could have been in. And then they went on boats and searched the waters for bodies. Other than some debris from the escape, there were no signs of the men. And we're going to get into those pieces of debris a little bit later. The search for these men was one of the largest manhunts through air, land, and sea, but the men had vanished. When the FBI came into the picture, their first question was, why the hell are there 80 blankets up hiding a portion of the cell house? What's that about, guards? (laughs) Which is when they found behind the blankets... It literally looked like a hardware store. Every sort of tool you could imagine had been stolen or constructed by the men, and it looked like hell back there. And through everything they found, authorities were able to piece together the true story, even though Alan gave them some. They're they're like, okay, we know you're leaving out a, a lot of details, so they were able to kind of piece it together. And they even discovered the men had constructed not one, but two rafts. <laughs> Isn't that two? ridiculous? They had a backup. Yes. One of them was left behind for Alan West. It was a smaller raft that wasn't built as well, but they also left him a life jacket on top of the cell block and they left a paddle for him on the roof. So, I mean, apparently Alan West could have potentially escaped as well. I don't know if he didn't know about the second raft or if he just was like, okay, the jig is up. I can't make it. I don't know. But there was a second raft with another life jacket and another paddle. I imagine that after you discover three of them left, you're a little bit more on guard. Sure. So, I don't know. Maybe he would have been shot on the way out. Yeah. Well, they didn't know that night. He, he Remember, because Alan West stayed on the roof all night. Oh, well, then why didn't he go? I don't know. That's Just what I'm saying. Just go on your own. Right. Well, okay, actually, I do have a theory, and we'll get into it later. How about that? Okay. Okay. The investigators doubted that the three men could have made it to shore on a flimsy raft made out of raincoats. But since no bodies had ever been found, the FBI operated on the assumption that the men did make it to shore. The men's story quickly made it all over the news and was pretty much everywhere that three men had escaped from Alcatraz. Two days after their escape, their paddle was discovered floating in the water just off of Angel Island, which is about a mile away from Alcatraz. And they knew that it was their paddle because there was an identical one that had been left behind for Alan West. They also found a package of photographs made out of the same material they used to make the life jackets, which was, you know, waterproof raincoats. So the photographs stuffed inside were of the Anglin family. The FBI believed that the men never would have left those memories behind, and because of that, they came to the conclusion that their raft must have sunk and the men drowned. But the Anglin family disagreed. I mean, of course, it's like, well, we can't find them. 
And here's the pictures. Right. They're dead. Right. So now we can go back home. <laughs> right, exactly. So the FBI was like, well, they're dead. And the Anglin family literally was like, that doesn't mean they're dead. They said they believed the men threw the pictures off of their raft to mislead law enforcement because they knew that their main goal was to get away, not to save their family memories. So even the Anglin family was like, dude, they're alive. Yeah, if they got to lose a jacket with some pictures to swim to shore, jacket's gone, baby. Yeah. Over the next few weeks, more debris from the escape popped up around San Francisco Bay. Three life jackets were found, one just off the coast of Alcatraz Island, one by Angel Island, and one out beyond the Golden Gate Bridge. But still no bodies. For 15 years, the FBI chased Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, surveilling their families very closely, following leads in the U.S. and abroad, but nothing of true significance ever turned up. Most people believe, or some people believe, that the men drowned in the bay, but others argue that they have no proof. And honestly, I'm kind of in the latter. Police officers admit that anytime there's a drowning, those corpses usually wind up on the shores. So because none of them ever did wash up dead, a lot of people believe that they definitely made it. There's also a theory that the men were met by someone in the bay with a boat. Because not only were there no bodies ever found, but the raft was never found. Whoa, the raft was never found? No. And I think, so uh, rewind a little bit to why I think Alan West may not have left with them, even though he had a raft for himself. I think that he knew that there was a boat waiting for the three of them. And he was like, well, I'm not going to get the boat. So I'm not going to go waste, or I'm not going to go risk my life trying to swim to shore and then just get recaptured anyway. Because here's what happened. So they believed that the boat was arranged by another prisoner at Alcatraz, who was a mob boss from Harlem, who is named Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson. (laughs) And he was called Bumpy Johnson. Bumpy Johnson. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) He was known as Bumpy Johnson. (laughs) How could, could you, like, you have to call the mob boss Bumpy Johnson and keep a straight face? (laughs) When I heard that this man's name was Bumpy Johnson, I couldn't wait to tell you. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my but God. But, I mean, the boys from Harlem came through on the boat. No, seriously. So he would have helped in any way that he could, and he had connections. So he could have is the thing. And so it was illegal for unauthorized boats to get within several hundred yards of Alcatraz. However, official police records confirmed that there was a boat between Alcatraz and Angel Island on the night of the escape around 1 a.m. San Francisco police officer Robert Chechi, who was on duty that night, reported later to his supervisor that he had seen a boat standing still off the shore of Alcatraz around 1 a.m. And then after some time, the boat turned back on and then sailed through the Golden Gate and disappeared. So you have a guard testimony? Not a guard, a police officer um, like on San Francisco Bay or just off of it. Okay, like but in you have, San Francisco. You have an eyewitness account. Yes. Of a boat of near a boat. Alcatraz. Wow. Isn't that insane? Theory's looking good. That's what I'm the saying. Theory's looking good. I think they lived, and I have more to talk about. There's no actual like proof, but I yeah. wholeheartedly believe that they got away. Yeah. 
Do bodies always wash up? That's what the police said. They're like, if they drowned, their bodies would have turned up. And the raft would have turned up. Yeah, the raft is never found. No. Yet you find all the paddles. Right. The life jackets. That's it. The pictures. It's fishy. It's very fishy. So if the men did survive, they likely fled to Mexico and then possibly South America. These men had studied Spanish during the many months they had leading up to the escape. After searching Allen West's cell, they found a map of Mexico torn out of a road atlas, and they saw that the men were then planning to go to Mexico and then to South America. So it's possible that they may have gone to Brazil to escape, since at that time there was no extradition from Brazil. So if they got there, they were kind of scot-free. One of the most promising leads was from a friend of the Anglin brothers who reported seeing them in Brazil in 1975, which was like, they had a ton of tips because these men's pictures were up all over the place and they got tips from all over the US, even out of the country. But this was by far the most promising because these were from close friends of the Anglin brothers. So it's not like, oh, I saw a man that looked like the Anglin brothers in 7-Eleven, but I don't know them personally. These people were like, I know them personally and I saw them in Brazil. Whoa. Yeah. There was also another tip from Brazil. One of their close friends ratted? I guess. Or I don't know if they were close friends, but they were definitely like family friends. They knew them? Yeah. There was also another tip that came in from Brazil and someone said that they had seen the men in a bar. So that's two tips in Brazil. There were some promising leads in Florida as well, but again, nothing came of those tips. But there is circumstantial evidence the men lived because every year on their family members' birthdays, the family members would receive anonymous postcards. Come on, Every guys. single year. And then on Mother's Day, their, their mother would receive anonymous flowers every single year. I mean, come on. Come on. Come on. I mean, come on. So in my mind, that says they probably lived. Also, it gets even crazier. At the Anglin mother's funeral, which the FBI attended, these two very tall women in long dresses and very heavy makeup showed up, said nothing to nobody, and then disappeared before the FBI could question them. (laughs) So the Anglin brothers very possibly dressed up as women, went to their mother's funeral, paid their respects, and dipped. Isn't that insane? It's kind of nuts. I loved that. When I heard that, I was like, oh my God, the balls. They commit to the bit. They really do. They commit. But also, like... That's kind of sad. I mean, it's kind of sweet because they knew that they could have gotten caught, but they still were like, I'm going to go to my mother's funeral, mm. which is, you know. But you never got to see her. Right. So it's, mean, it's sad, but also they couldn't really, like once they escaped from prison, they were like, okay, we have to go underground. It's the only option. Yeah, it's the only way. Right. After the men's escape in 1962, Attorney General Robert Kennedy announced the closure of Alcatraz prison and the remaining inmates were transferred to other institutions. And now Alcatraz is empty and has become a tourist attraction in San Francisco and is also very haunted, in case anyone wanted to know. Yeah, well, when you beat people for 14 days, uh, some spirits might reside there. Potentially. So yeah, I don't know. That's the story of the escape from Alcatraz. I just had to look into it because I'm in San Francisco and uh, it felt right. 
Yeah, I know. And it's a little conspiracy survivor it's story. It's a little you know? bit. I mean, we hadn't ever told a story where we didn't have proof that the person survived. So this is a bit of a stretch. But I do believe that they survived. And also, is it your podcast? <laughs> and also, it's my show, it's damn my it. It's my show. I know. Well, I was... Because we're both like getting really excited. Because this is just crazy. Yeah. All the things that went into it. How they duped the guards. I mean two 14 foot or not 14 foot rafts but two rafts i mean come on one of them hardware yeah one of them was 14 feet by six feet the other one was smaller but like compared to the large one what does small mean like eight feet i don't know man (laughs) you know but it's just like crazy we're like getting excited but then i'm thinking what did they do again like what did they do to get in uh robbers they like stole stuff they weren't murderers they were just like they stole a lot of stuff okay which which makes it better it does make it better <laughs> it makes it better but there there is some, like even if they were there's something about just how like the ingenuity that it took that <laughs> like, makes everyone kind of let them off the hook well, for whatever reason sure but we don't have to like we don't have to let them off the hook but i'm just saying like, murderers no <laughs> as soon robbers. as yeah as soon as they pull off something like this everyone overlooks the fact that they whatever they did before they're like holy shit Maybe. they just escaped from alcatraz yeah it would go down in history whoever they were but thankfully they were not murderers i think that would be a lot scarier for like the general yeah. public if they were like <laughs> murderers yeah who had escaped alcatraz and were nowhere to be found at this point it's just like oh no they they might rob my bank don't don't rob my bank with a toy gun please yeah <laughs> like i mean i'm sure they were not like they were doing wrong stuff they might have been bad people i don't know these men personally clearly but from what they went to prison for it's not like a violent crime yeah and now that i am reminded of this i'm kind of like eh, let them go you know what yeah let them go Even if you <laughs> saw them at the funeral they already made it let them go yeah <laughs> just don't know what it is about that that makes me just kind of dismiss all of it i mean it's like it's incredible just, it's incredible that they were able to do on that. that other than what they did yeah it's just yeah i couldn't believe it i had never like i haven't even seen the the movie escape from alcatraz like the clint eastwood movie i have to watch it at some point but yeah this was like all new information for me and it was very exciting to research and like fun to yeah. experience it was all new for me too because you all the, all the background and all the evidence of post escape I didn't know about yeah so i actually went to alcatraz when i was like 12 oh really i did the tour yeah but they they focus more on like the ghosts and they they talk yeah. about the escape but nowhere near in this detail sure and then the consensus is oh they drowned right it's right. the fbi line yeah but they don't tell you about the boat the eyewitness account of the boat the fact that the raft was never found and that their family all their family members and mothers got anonymous postcards and flowers every year i mean every single one of them yeah i mean come on yeah there was a lot of there was a lot more like circumstantial evidence around the anglin brothers less so around frank morris but i mean maybe they just split up once they were escaped you know maybe um wonder where he went yeah i don't know yeah the other thing i was wondering is brazil speaks portuguese yeah so i wonder if they like thought that it was spanish make it <laughs> till you like, make it yeah and... just learn i mean i guess yeah. they were learning spanish for like the initial part of their escape into mexico but yeah. um i don't know i mean it was the 60s right there was no there's no way to track you no i mean just think about uh what was the story the story of patty hearst when it was basically like 
domestic terrorists mm-hmm. were just hanging out in San Francisco. Yeah. In plain sight. Yeah, no, they definitely couldn't track them. But I, I thought it was kind of funny that they kept up the search for 15 years. Because when they got the tips from Brazil, they literally had to send FBI agents down to Brazil to like go search. <laughs> and they never found anything. But they were just like, okay, now we got to go to Brazil. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, just go find them in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> How hard could it be? Come on, guys. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just wanted to look into that story. I thought it was super interesting, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. But what is your good thing? I have my good thing ready. You want me to go first? You go with your good thing. My good thing is uh, the bed in our hotel room is like a cloud, and it is a nice change-up from our bed in Los Angeles, which is not as cloud-like. It's a nice bed in the hotel. Yes. What's your good thing? Oh, uh, my good thing is that I'm going to get to see my little cousins uh, this weekend. Hell yeah. Because they live up here. Yeah, that's a good thing I'm for sure. Go visit them. Love that. And so am I. You will be there too, yes. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to play with them. It'll be fun. Yeah. It's like I'm a rock star every time I come over. Yeah. Little uh, little baby cousins. Oh, yeah. You're the... get... I just love playing with them. For uh, sure. Like, You're super cool. I swear it, it's the formula to play with toddlers is to just disagree with them about facts that are obviously true (laughs) it's like oh the bowl's on the table no it's not they're like yeah it is and they'll just get worked up they love it you're very good at playing with toddlers it's like it's definitely a skill well you're very good at it i am a toddler that's true you are childlike so that (laughs) it it works (laughs) i guess it works anyways thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to check out all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast if you would like to hear the bonus episode that just came out last week check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast if you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to notodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.